two things before I begin the lesson. One is we hope we have a good number at the meeting at 5 o'clock this afternoon. I was asking Leah where that meeting is going to be. It's going to begin in here. I think she said they're going to take a field trip uh, to the resource room. But it's going to begin uh, in here. The other thing is your, your preacher may have some weird things to confess or something. Because that song before the prayer, there's a verse in there, that the line, the third verse, uh, if I have done anything perverse or cold or hard, I sing, if I have done anything perverse or card or hold. I, I don't know what I'm trying, this is psychological, I mixed up the C and the H, and I was looking ahead, but card or hold, I don't know what... I need to do some study on something somewhere and figure out what's going on in my life. I don't know what the deal is. It will happen again, as it does every year, next Sunday. And it goes by without a whole lot of fanfare and those sorts of things. But it is one of those days kind of on the, the church calendar every year that just happens to, to run by. And it's, it's a big deal. We don't make a huge deal out of it, but it's an important day. It's, it's the day where our young people promote in our Bible classes to the age if they're in preschool, the grade if they're in school, uh, that corresponds with where they're at. They've already started school and they're happy there and loving it, taking tests. But now they, they match that up. It's always an odd time where they've been in school for two or three weeks and then uh, they're still going to the grade here that doesn't quite match that. And then we will have a, another week before our adults change classes. It's kind of a strange way it's happening this year. By the way, I don't know if you've seen the, the flyer yet for the fall quarter. Is it not somewhat exciting that we actually have two adult classes in the fall. Another small, hopefully, Lord willing, we have to always have to say that, and the COVID don't rise. Um, some of you will figure that out later. Um, but just one of those small steps uh, that I'm excited about, and, and it's a small thing, but it is, it is a thing, and that's very, very encouraging on Sunday mornings, beginning in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, we'll have a couple of classes to choose from, and that's exciting. And as is always the case, when we have Bible class, there's, we'll put the numbers up here, we'll print them in the bulletin. There's always this gap between our Bible class attendance and our worship attendance. And some of that is understandable. You know, some for medical reasons can't be here for that long. The doctor's told not to leave the house for very long. Others, maybe you're taking care of someone and just can't leave for that long. They can come to worship. That's all they can do. We understand those things. But, but from time to time, there's just this huge gap, some percentage-wise. And it just makes us wonder, why, why is that the case? And sometimes people say, well, hang on a second. Show me the verse, right? Show me the verse the New Testament says, thou shalt attend Bible class on Sunday mornings. And, and you're right, there's not one there. there. There's not a verse that says, in fact, I'll go on your side for a little longer and say there's not a verse that says a congregation must have Bible classes. That, that verse just isn't there either. But... There are a couple of principles in the New Testament that need to come into our mind as we think about this. One is just simply the desire to know God's Word. I mean, here's an opportunity to do that, to, to have someone who has studied and prepared lessons, and whether it's a, a class for babies all the way through our oldest members, a teacher has spent some time thinking and studying, and, and I want to learn from that person. I want my children to learn from that person. And so there's just this desire factor that should be part of it. But also Hebrews 13 and 17 tells us that we are to obey our leaders in context, talking about our elders. And, and our elders have set aside these times, Sunday morning and Wednesday nights, for us to come together and to learn God's Word together and encourage us to do that. And I, I need to subject myself to that. 
But what I want to do this morning is not give 427 reasons why we should be in Bible class. I preached, what, eight or nine a couple of years ago, but I want to do that lesson again. Instead, I want you to go back to Psalm 119. And I'm sure when some of you heard Psalm 119, you thought, we are never getting out of worship this morning. But we only looked at one little paragraph out of 176 verses. And what I want to do this morning is walk through that little section, that paragraph or that section of the poem, that stanza of the poem, if you want to call it that, from verse 89 through verse 96. And I want us to see some things from that text, and you can find others. In fact, I kind of narrowed down the list for our lesson this morning, that are simply true about the Word of God. And then take each of those things, we're going to name six, each of those things, and see why knowing those things should have us wanting to be back in Bible school. These things are true across the board. All six of them are true of personal Bible study. They're true of, of when we study the Bible in, in a sermon. They're true of hopefully you know family devotionals and just whatever. But I want us to notice each of these six things about God's Word and what it is, how valuable it is, and then see how much more value it is when we do these things collectively together in our Bible classes. Six things. Number one, when we study God's Word, we are studying an unchanging book. Scholars disagree, by the way, as to who wrote this really, really long poem. Most think it was David. I think it was David. I'm not a scholar, but I, I tend to agree with that. There are some who make very compelling arguments that Ezra wrote it. There are some who just say, well, it doesn't say above the poem a psalm of David or a psalm of Ezra, so, so we don't know. And that's true. We don't know. I'm going to use David throughout this lesson, but if you disagree, it's fine. So long as we agree on one thing, and that is that the Holy Spirit inspired it. And the reason I want to make sure we point that out in this lesson is because that very first word of verse 89, forever. Forever. Whether David is the penman, whether Ezra is the penman, whether it's someone we don't even know the name of, who, who's the penman, the poet of this, this particular psalm, the Holy Spirit had that person write down the word forever. Something that is unchanging. And what is it? It's the Word of God. Forever, O Lord, Your Word. And I love that next little phrase. Some translations have is settled. Some translations have something like is firmly fixed in the heavens. You, you can translate that word different ways or define that word different ways. It means established. You can find some that say the word actually means stationary. Your word is stationary. I, I like that definition of it. But we get the idea of what the poet is trying to say. The Word of God is something that is fixed. It's not going to change. You watch the news anytime lately or ever? You, you turn on the news on, online or on television or pick up a newspaper, and you can watch the, morning, the news in the morning and watch the news again in the evening, and it's different. Because it seems like so many things in our world are just shifting and moving and, and all over the place all the time. And, and it leaves us sometimes with this unsettled feeling. And that's okay. I mean, that's just part of the way the world is. And some of that's because we know so much because we have 24-hour news and so every five seconds something has to change. But some of that is also just because of the world in which we live. Things just shift and move and change all the time. Should it not cause us to be grateful then that we have something that does not change? And it's a thing on which we stake our life and our eternity. The Word of God. It is absolutely stationary. It will stay to, say tomorrow what it says today. It will teach tomorrow what it teaches today. 
What difference does that make as far as our Bible classes? Don't I want to know as best I can the one thing in this life that's not going anywhere? And don't I want my children to know the one thing in this life that is not going to shift and change and move under their feet because the world is going to. We know that. Our children may even know that already because the world in which they live is so much information. But we as adults know that and they see that. Don't we want them and us to have something in their life, the most important thing in their life, that is absolutely unchanging? If I do, then why would I not jump at every opportunity to take it into my life? Number two, when we study God's Word, we are reminded of the faithfulness of God. As the poet goes on, he talks about the, the faithfulness of God in verse 90. But before I get there, I want, want us to think about one thing. You may think, well, you know, we're doing a Bible class on whatever. We're going through the book of Nehemiah. Or we're studying David and Goliath this week. Or we're studying a particular topic, prayer, or something along those lines. Or, or we're thinking about anything. We have Bible classes of all sorts of things. Some textual, we go through a text. Some biographical, next, next quarter, uh, on Wednesday nights, I'm teaching a class on the apostles, more sort of a biographical thing. We, we sometimes study topical things. We study prayer for a few weeks or whatever it is. But here's the thing. No matter what it is we are studying in a Bible class, if we forget to connect that to God, we've missed the point of whatever it is that we are studying because He is the absolute central figure of everything found in Scripture. And so it's no wonder then that as the poet, I believe David, continues this poem, he reminds us of one of the great qualities of, qualities, excuse me, of God, and that is the faithfulness of God. God is always faithful. He's always been faithful to His people and He always will be. And the poet even says at the end of verse 91 that all things are God's servants. If I can kind of paraphrase that a little bit, God will use any means necessary to make sure we know He is faithful. You read through Scripture, it's remarkable sometimes how God does things or what God utilizes or uses to bring about His faithfulness, or to show His faithfulness, I should say, to people. So they recognize that He really is the one behind all of these things. He really is the one bringing it about. But we understand God's faithfulness in so many different ways. God is faithful simply in the fact that He has revealed Himself through His Word, and that Word, as we talked about just a moment ago, is not changing. That in itself is a sign of God's faithfulness. God is faithful in that what He demands of us does not change. Now it is true that sometimes I may not know God demands something of me. I learn it later. You might think of Romans chapter 7 where the Apostle Paul said, I would have known what it was to covet if the law hadn't said not to covet. Basically Paul was saying, I, I didn't get it for a while and now I get it. So, so that may change as far as my understanding of it. But what God actually demands does not change. And isn't that a beautiful sign of His faithfulness? He's not going to tell you to do something He doesn't tell me to do. He's not going to change tomorrow and go, well, that, that culture changed, so I changed my demands. No, what God demands is what God demands. And it's a sign of His faithfulness that that is just true throughout the ages. But God is ultimately faithful, of course, in redemption, in saving His people. From the exodus out of Egypt, bringing His people out of captivity, to ultimately Jesus being on the cross, as we were reminded about this morning before the Lord's Supper, John 3.16, God has always proven to be faithful in redeeming His people. And He has made sure that we know that is true if we will just seek Him through His Word. 
He's faithful. And one of the things that's true of, of our time is this idea of, of just being cynical, questioning things. And, and there's some legitimacy to that, because let's be honest, there's a lot to question in our world. There's a lot to be cynical about in our world. It seems as if the list of people or groups that you can trust just seems to get shorter and shorter and shorter all the time. But God will never be on the list of the unfaithful. God is always faithful. And so should I not want then every opportunity to connect my heart and my life to Him who is faithful? And should I not want my children to learn from the very smallest of ages through when they're in elementary school, when they're in high school, and on to our adult years about this faithful God who even when things sometimes seem dark and completely against Him, proves Himself always to be faithful. I can do that in a Bible class by someone who loves teaching about that if I'll avail myself of it. Number three, when we study God's Word, we are also studying a life-giving text. I love how verse 92 begins, the first line of it. If your law had not been my delight, my delight... That's a perfect translation. The word just means something that's pleasant. That's, that's all it means. But I want you to think about something, the first part of that line. And I don't want to stretch this too far. I'll, I'll bring this up again in just a second. But David says, if your law had not been my delight. Now here's why I don't want to stretch that too far. Because if you read all 176 verses, one thing is going to take you a few minutes. But if you read all 176 verses this poem, you may remember that David uses terms like law and statutes and precepts, those sorts of things. He uses them interchangeably. He, he intertwines synonyms all throughout this poem. But every word of Scripture matters. And I don't think it's any accident that in this particular line, of all of those synonyms that he could have chosen, he chose Torah, the word for law. If God's law had not been my delight... Just wonder, do I see even the laws of God as a delightful thing? I mean, that's, that's the heart behind the first line of this, this verse. It doesn't necessarily mean I always agree with them, or I even necessarily always understand them. But do I see them as a delight? But then keep going, and David says why they were his delight. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts. Why? For by them you have given me life. They've given me life. Now, you can find scholars who disagree. Was David talking about physical life? Or was David talking about spiritual life? Or was David talking about a physical reality and using that to illustrate a spiritual truth? That's what I think it is. But however David specifically meant it, what he is saying is that the words of God, the teachings of God, are what gave him a pleasant, pleasing, delightful life. What a beautiful thought that is. The world around us says that's just not true. The world around us says, no, no, you follow that old Bronze Age book and what you're finding is a restrictive, closed off, boring, that's the life you're going for. When one who walked with God made some mistakes, but understood the, the process of following God's law, said, when I followed your law, I had a delightful life. 
a delightful life. I just wonder, do I see God's Word, God's law that way? Do I really believe what David would write just a handful of verses later, a much more famous verse in this psalm, Your Word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my pathway. Do I really believe that? Do I, do I really believe that, that God's Word is something that, that builds up my life here, but also ultimately, of course, gives me the hope for the ultimate life in heaven? If so, if the answer to those questions is yes, why would I not jump at every chance to hear about it? To have that encouragement for this life and that view of an eternal life. We are studying a life-giving text. Number four, when we consider God's Word, we are studying a message that's worth pursuing. Look again at what David says in verse 94. I'm going to take this verse in reverse order. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. Now, take that verse in reverse order for a second. I have sought your precepts. The word for precepts, by the way, literally means your mandates. That's probably a word we would use more often than precepts in our culture. But David says there's something about the, the mandates of God, the precepts of God, that are worth pursuing, worth seeking after. But why go back up one line? They save me. There's a salvation connected with the Word of God. Now think about when, if David wrote this, when he penned this. We don't know when his life it was. But the very obvious thing that needs to be said was, is, it was obviously before the cross. But even before the cross, David had somehow connected in his mind the concept of following the Word of God and seeking after the Word of God and finding some type of salvation, safety. Living on this side of the cross? Should we not know that even more? Should we not see the absolute clearest connection possible between seeking after, pursuing after the Word of God and finding salvation. We've mentioned this verse a lot lately, just sort of randomly in lessons, happens to, to come to, to the fore. But Jesus Himself is the one that said in John 12, 48, the words that I have spoken are what will be judged by on the last day. By God's words, we will find salvation. Now again, there are some... In this verse, you say, well, was David talking about something in his physical life or was he talking about his spiritual life? Again, I think David is using a physical reality to bring about a spiritual truth. The point of it is that God's Word brings salvation to us if, if it is obeyed. And it's worth pursuing that. Why would I not want to why would I not want to pursue the Word of God every chance that I get? Number five, when we study the Word of God, we are stu studying something that protects us. The word picture David draws in verse 95 is one where he, again, uses something that could have been real, something that's from a physical truth to point out a spiritual reality. We talk to this idea of the wicked lying in wait to destroy him. It's possible he has in mind some kind of uh, physical truth, something from his past. It's possible he's using the idea because he uses the word wicked to describe those who would place temptations before him. So he's talking about a spiritual truth. And it seems to me he's using a word picture there 
that any of us can understand. Now, hopefully, we've never actually had it happen where someone physically was lying in wait to hurt us, to harm us, to destroy us. But even if we haven't actually had that happen in our physical lives, we can get that picture in our mind. It's, it's a fear a lot of people have whether it's actually happened or not. We, we can see that picture. And so David, it seems to me, is using maybe something real from his life or maybe just something that's, that's a common fear of people to illustrate that that's what it's like walking through this spiritual life. That there are people around us, the culture around us, and all these things, and of course, our enemy, Satan, 1 Peter 5 verse 8, is there lying in wait. He's waiting to tempt us. How do we possibly walk through that kind of world? I consider your testimonies. If you mark in your Bible... You may want to, I don't know how you draw a line, because probably on a different page. This is a really long poem. But you may want to, in the cross-reference or out to the side or something, beside verse 95, make a reference of some kind all the way back to a much more well-known verse from this very same poem, verse 11. Because in a lot of ways, David is just restating that much more well-known verse. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We know that verse a lot better. But now David, it seems, is bringing that same concept back 80 verses later and basically saying, here's why I've stored up my, uh, your word in my heart that I'm not sinning against you because I'm walking through a world where there are people lying in wait to bring me down, to tempt me. And how do I possibly continue to walk through that kind of world? I consider the word of God. I consider the testimonies of God. How do I know when I see good and when I see evil. Well, we could say, well, it's, I just get to make it up. I think this is good. I think this is bad. And a lot of people live their life that way. But it doesn't work. David basically says the only way to make it through that is to have God's Word continually on our mind. Let me speak to those of us who are parents for a moment specifically. Parents... We, we are trying to raise a generation of young people in a world that, frankly, spiritually does not like them. And that's putting it very kindly. And it's good for us to give them all kinds of tools to help them be you know, streetwise, help them to know how to just deal with different situations and that sort of thing. But how are we equipping them to answer the issues of this life? Do they just know how to give some kind of worldly answer because that's what we've given them? Or are we giving them God's Word so they first of all know good from evil as defined by God, but also how to give a biblical, log biblically logical answer to say this is right or this is wrong. This is how I'm going to live and this is how I'm not going to live. I'm going to say this and not say that. I'm going to think this and not think that. If we have street-wise kids but not biblically-wise kids, we're not doing our job. And we've got to make sure that we are doing our best to instill in them the Word of God so they can answer any situation. But it's not just for young people. It's for all of us. How many of us, when we are faced with some kind of ethical issue, ethical decision, I can tell you what my political party thinks. Or I can tell you what my favorite news media outlet thinks. Or I can tell you what the latest meme on Facebook says. Folks, there is not a political party that ultimately is going to save our soul. There is not a news media outlet out there that really cares if I go to heaven or hell, ultimately. 
there's, there's for sure not a Facebook meme <laughs> that's, that's going to give me anything more than at best some kind of pop psychology. Only the Word of God helps me know how to answer every situation in a way that pleases God. Why would I then be at every opportunity to know and to be encouraged by how to answer any situation in this life? And number six, when we consider God's Word, we are studying a book with broad application. There are different ways to interpret verse 96. And I understand that. But when I read that verse, this is kind of the, the ultimate takeaway that I get. I have seen the limits to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Ever heard anybody say, you know, the Bible just doesn't really, it doesn't really fit in modern America. It doesn't really make any difference or help me to understand how to live in America in 2021 in a Western culture, a technological culture, an advanced culture. It was written a long time ago in a different language on the other side, of, a couple of different languages, on the other side of the world. It really does not apply in, in our modern world. If you think that, you've bought a lie. Because not only does it apply in our modern culture, it applies across the board in our modern culture. Now, that does not mean that you can turn to some particular passage and say, here's how to act on social media. Because social media didn't exist. When David wrote one, Psalm 119, or John wrote his account of the gospel, or when Peter wrote his letters, that stuff didn't exist. But are there not principles found all throughout the Bible to handle very modern things? Go back to the example of social media. Can we not go to, to principles that deal with things like the use of our words? and the use of our influence, and the use of our time. Are there not principles that are found? Of course there are, all over the place. And we can apply that same concept to any number of very modern, very technologically advanced situations in which we find ourselves. And, and what David, again, who I believe wrote this poem, the first part of it basically says, man can't do that. You can read the laws of people, and by necessity, they have to be very specific. Man, read law codes sometime. For one thing, you're going to be bored. But they are going to be extremely specific to this town, this jurisdiction, this particular school system, this particular country, and this group of people or that group of people in that place and that time. And that's what the law means. This person does this and this is the punishment. God's Word can be applied across the board to any culture in any time, in any situation. Now, we sometimes have to work to make the application. I understand that. That's a lot of times what I do when I'm preaching. But it's also true when we're in a Bible class and that teacher's teaching about David and Goliath or that teacher's walking us through the book of Nehemiah or that teacher's telling us about the apostles or that teacher's talking about prayer or whatever it happens to be. They give us the biblical facts. They give us the information from God's Word. But then they say, by the way, here's... What a difference that can make as an employee. Here's what a difference that can make as a parent. Here's what a difference that can make with your neighbor. Here's what a difference that can make when you're online. And all these applications that go across the board in, in, everyone, in all of our lives and every life in the world. Only God's Word can do that. So why would I not want to be at every opportunity where I can see here is something that actually applies when I'm at school, when I'm at work, when I'm online, when I'm at home, whenever it happens to be. I would begin to think, that maybe, just maybe, this is a little bit important. It's true. There's no verse in the New Testament that says, Thou shalt attend Bible class. I understand that. 
And there are times we must be away. I understand that as well. But the fact of the matter is, I need to make sure that if there is an opportunity to learn God's Word, I'm there. And if our elders have asked us to be there, that I'm there. That I'm understanding that. But somebody says, now hang on a second. All those things you mentioned from those verses, and we could have gone through all 176. If you want to be here for a while, we can. That's, we'll stay a while. It's okay. We go through all 176 verses and find more and more and more lists just like that. All of them are true when I open my Bible at home and study. Yeah. All those things are true or can be true when our family sits in our living room around a table and has a, has a family devotion. That's right. All those things are true or should be true when we're listening to a sermon. I hope, that's, I hope they're all true. I get that. Let me ask a very pointed question. I admit that it is. Why would I come up with excuses not to hear God's Word again? Is that not a fair question to ask? Why would I start listing reasons why I'm not going to be? Or someone who loves God and loves His Word and loves me is trying to teach my children, me, whoever it happens to be, something from God's Word that can help me or help my children or help my teenagers. I need to be back in Bible school. When I travel, and I know next week's Labor Day weekend, some people are going, we are getting out of here for a few days. I get that. When I travel, if, if a congregation where I'm traveling to has Bible classes. I want to be in those classes. What are they studying? What are they learning? What insights do they have that I haven't heard in a while? That's, that's wonderful. If I have to be home and watch the live stream because I'm sick or I'm taking care of someone, will I watch the Bible class and the worship? Or just one? Why would I make excuses not to be where God's Word is being taught? Let's be back in Bible school. Let's pray in the books in the Lord's invitation. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We're thankful that you have revealed yourself. The, thing, the things that we need to know to honor you in this life, the things that we need to know to prepare ourselves to be found faithful in you and in your Son through your word. We're thankful you've given it to us in, in written form so that it doesn't change, so that we know exactly what you expect of us in, in speech, in thought, in action, in our attitudes. And Father, we're thankful that in Your wisdom and power You've given us a Word that we, yes, we have to work at understanding and applying, but we can. And we can apply it everywhere in our lives, for our young people in school, for us as we have jobs and as we work in neighborhoods and play on ball fields and as we go online and do all sorts of things. Father, we're thankful that there is an unchanging Word that helps us to know the kind of people that You would have us to be in every situation of life. And Father, we pray that we would... Have a heart that desires to always be where your word is being taught. We're thankful for those who give of their time. It does take a lot of time to prepare Bible classes for little children, for school-age young people, for teenagers, for adults. We're thankful for the study they put in. We're thankful for the willingness to, uh, to sit at those little tables or to stand behind a podium and to speak. It's, it's not easy. But we're thankful for those who give of their time, their effort, 
and uh, for those who miss an adult class so they can teach our little children, our teenagers. We're thankful for that sacrifice they make so that all of our young people can learn. We're thankful for those who uh, prepare materials, who do so many things that go behind the scenes that may not be known as well, but that help our teachers uh, have materials, have things at the ready. Father, we're thankful for every student, from the youngest of the young to those who are senior saints, who really do love your word and who make every effort to be where it's being taught. And we're thankful those connections are made where our small children are taught at their level, our teenagers are taught at their level, our adults are taught things that are much deeper from your word and help us to be encouraged and grow in our faith. Father, help us to evaluate our, our faithfulness to your word, our desire to really know what you would have us to do. We're thankful that our elders set aside these times for us to study. And we pray that you'll bless them as they continue to make decisions about all sorts of things, but specifically about our Bible school program. We're thankful for Dave Schulte and David Dodd as they are deacons that help in our Bible school program, get teachers and do so many things behind the scenes. Uh, to make sure that our classes go as smoothly as possible. Sometimes teachers get sick and other things happen and they have to step up and, and find teachers and do things that we often just don't know about. They do so so well doing that. And we're thankful for their willingness to serve in, in that area specifically. And Father, help us as a congregation to, to not worship your word, but to be grateful for it. We worship you, but help us to be grateful that through your word, we know how to worship you and how to honor you and how to live for you. And help us to have a desire to know your word as best we possibly can and to always desire to know more. In Jesus we pray. Amen. This word tells us how to please God. And aren't you thankful that God revealed that? Aren't you thankful that God didn't just say, here's 55 things I want you to do in this life, but... It doesn't really make any difference. No, God has said, here's exactly how I want you to live and here's exactly what I've done to make it where that ultimately matters. Not just have a good life here, but to be able to go home with Him. His Word says that we must believe in His Son who came and died on the cross. His Word is what says that I must turn from those things that are wrong. We call it repentance, but all it means is to turn. To turn from sin to live for Him. His Word says that I must confess that His Son, Jesus, is Lord and Savior. And His Word says that I must be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of my sins. If you've never done that, why would you ever delay to come to a God who is faithful and always faithful? Most of us in this room who are of age have done that. But maybe in this area or some other area of your life, there's something where your faith is wavering. This same Word tells us to be faithful unto death. And that's how we receive that crown of life. Maybe this morning you need to return in faithfulness. Whatever your need is, will you come? Always say and sing to encourage you.